Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hey, my caregiver partners and everybody else. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Today, I want to do a little bit of a workshop with you. So um, I'd like you to grab a pen and paper if you can and make sure you've got a pad, not just a small piece, because I'm going to give you a way to kind of work through some of the issues that we have, especially in the very beginning, early stages of any diagnosis of dementia. Okay, because when that journey begins, I think we all really could use some help with having a little bit of a path, you know, a way to to look at what we're doing and how we're doing it and are we doing it in the best way possible. So I want you to write down some little topics here and and I'm going to talk to you about a subject and then what I want you to do is work through these things that I'm going to talk to you about. So the first one is, and you can just write this at the top of the page and maybe make it bold or highlighted or something, but it's suggestions for expressing and recording your travels. And by your travel, I mean your journey, what you're going through, what you're doing. So you can say recording your journey if you want. That's okay. All right. And then the other thing is going to be practical suggestions that are going to help you pave the way to being successful on that journey. Pretty simple, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up a couple things. And then each time we're going to circle back to, you know, expressing and recording your journey and then practical suggestions to help you pave the path on that journey. So from the very beginning, the the whole idea of putting a plan in place just really isn't there. We're not thinking about putting a plan in place in place. We're looking at symptoms. We're looking at the way that person's personality is changing. We're looking at some miscues that are happening. And we're not necessarily thinking about anything except for getting that diagnosis, right? Why is this happening? What are we doing? So some of the questions that you might have um, are like, who can I turn to for information and support? How can I prepare myself for what's about to happen? And how can I stay open to any of the gifts that this experience is going to bring to me? And by that, what I mean is, you know, I had a lot of really good gifts with my mom. The fact that I could sing with her, you know, working on activities of daily living and and folding uh, towels and clothes with her. Uh, the smile that she would give me when I understood something she was trying to say or a thought that she was trying to, to put forth. So I think there are ways that you can find those gifts, but you have to be open to them, right? And I think in some ways for me, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, stripped away a lot of the negative elements of my mom's personality you know, sometimes uh, we had a hard time connecting, and I think that 
that Alzheimer's took away that hard wiring that she had that kept her from being intimate or uh, being able to have a deep conversation with you. And she became much more loving and easier to talk to. And I thought it gave us a way to kind of get out of old patterns that we got stuck in and behaviors that had kept us boxed up and separated from each other, you know, sometimes. And I, I thought my mom was a very loving person. But these were things that uh, I thought, well, there's a couple of things about her personality and my personality that just didn't mesh. And uh, it's something that kind of came to my mind when she got sick. So kind of one of those things, as an example, was the fact that she was not a person with a very developed palate. Uh, the way that she cooked was very simple, very easy food and things like that. And I always kind of thought that it was weird that she wouldn't try other things uh, to eat, which sometimes kind of irritated me as a teenager and stuff, you know. And I saw those kinds of changes with her being willing to eat other things and, and things like that when she started becoming progressed with dementia. So under like the suggestions for expressing and recording your journey, one of the things I want you to ask yourself, is it difficult for you to ask questions? Questions of that person. How are you feeling today? It, has anything changed? Do you feel like you're more confused? Are these difficult questions for you to ask? In the early stage, I think these are questions that we have to ask. We have to figure out where that person is. We, we have to figure out what kinds of questions are difficult to ask and why are they difficult to ask. Are you afraid of hurting that person's feelings? Are you afraid of making them feel diminished? What is the problem? Why are we having trouble asking questions? If you can ask questions in the early stages, you're going to be a lot better off as the, the disease progresses and that person becomes more confused. So some of the other things that you could think about, um, your suggestions for expressing yourself and, and recording this journey is how do you relate to your loved one's disease? right? Are you freaked out about it being Alzheimer's? Do you find yourself fighting the situation? Um, are you having trouble embracing it? Are you having trouble wanting to get a diagnosis? Because if you do that, it's going to make it real. I got news for you. If you don't do, don't do it. It's going to make it real. There's no way around that. So, you know, why or why not would you not want to embrace it or embrace it? Why are you nervous about asking questions about that person's condition? These are good ways to start with sort of journaling how this path is going to go and finding ways that are going to help you get through the emotional difficulties. So I want you to make a list of the emotions you feel about the words dementia and Alzheimer's, okay? And then think about each emotion and sort of unmask its impact on you. Why does that give you the creeps? Why are you worried? Are you afraid of a stigma? 
Are you worried that you'll catch it? <laughs> you know, I mean, we we have all kinds of of issues around the emotional impact of what is happening to us. Are we going to be next? Is it going to run in the family? All those questions come to play. Could it be that your anger about the situation, about finding a diagnosis and starting to work through the problems and and, and the exploration of it? it? Or is it fear? Are you impatient or are you confused about what's happening? Are you impatient with the person and the way that they are, um, you know, executing their activities of daily living, the way they're brushing their teeth, the way they're getting dressed or taking too long? Um, Or are you confused about whether or not you're seeing what you're really seeing? All those things can come into play. All right. So now we're going to get to the practical suggestions of paving your path. So I want you to think about the strengths that you're going to bring to this journey. And you have strengths. You do. You have ways that you are compassionate and loving towards that person. You could be like me, an A-type personality where everything is a project management situation and you're just going to chart everything out and get to a doctor and get a diagnosis and learn as much as you can or whatever it is. What are those strengths? And then think about your weaknesses, that maybe you're impatient with that person sometimes. You've got some old baggage that you have to deal with. I don't know. But as a caregiver, I want you to think about what steps you can take to lead with your strengths And minimize those frustrations. Get rid of the crap. Get rid of that old baggage, the emotional issues that you've had over the years with your person. And try to get to a place where you feel good about working with that person. Okay? And then make a list of your goals as a caregiver. What do you want? Include your personal goals and the the goals that you might have for that person. So what would those be? You might have a personal goal of being able to care for them throughout the the whole journey. If you do that, you're going to need to learn some strategies and techniques. And you're going to have to learn to manage your own emotions. And you're going to have to learn that you're going to uh, really, you're going to be in charge of the uh the intensity in the room and everything that is happening every time you walk into a room with them. You're going to set that emotional tone every time you walk into a room with them, okay? And then what about your loved one? Do you want them to do as much as they can possibly do for as long as they can possibly do it? Do you want to still try to communicate with them and say, tell me when you have a confusing moment, I promise I won't judge you? Uh, Do you want to sit down with them and say, tell me what you want to do? Do you need a safe zone when when I'm talking to you that that you know I won't judge you or say, oh, well, you're not going to drive now because you you know you changed lanes the other day in traffic and didn't um, look at, you know, the oncoming traffic behind you. You didn't look over your shoulder in your blind spot and stuff like that. Okay. 
And last but not least on this section, look at your own health issues and schedule an appointment for your own doctor to find out how this is going to affect your blood pressure, how this is going to affect any aches and pains that you have, any uh, concerns you have about your own health and your own ability to care for this person. Do you have a heart problem that you need to consider? These are important things to talk about. All right. So I want you to really think about the fact that it's not just the person themselves having to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis. But as I just said, I want you to make sure that you are physically able to do what you need to do and that together you can find a path to peace through this Alzheimer's journey because, man, if you don't, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to shift your thinking and your loved one's thinking to not be stubborn and to be communicative and to be able to work together and brainstorm, you know, what you're going to do if there's a neurological problem and it's going to, you know, wreak havoc on your brain. Learning as much as about the brain as you can would be a super good idea just because we need to figure out how we're going to have discussions about these things. So now I want to go back to the suggestions for expressing and recording your travels and your your journey. What are some of the barriers in your family to obtaining a diagnosis of Alzheimer's? What are you worried about? Seriously, as you think about them, what can you do yourself to handle the process in a good way? Are you going to include other family members? Are you going to let siblings or good friends of your loved one or um, anybody, anybody that's involved in the situation, are you going to let them know? Are you going to keep a secret? How are you going to work with this? I think the quieter we keep it, the more dangerous the situation becomes. I think the more open lines of communication that you have – can help you to be more successful. I just cannot say that enough, all right? Because I'm telling you, denial is a powerful emotion that can keep you from moving forward on this journey. I've seen it over and over and over again. And denial is, is it is, if it gets factored into your family dynamic, it's a hard thing to overcome. So what steps can you take to be more accepting of the diagnosis so that you can help other family members to be more accepting? The person that has the the disease themselves, they may take it hard at first, but then feel okay about it as long as everyone around them feels okay about it. And this is why it's important to think about all of this as we're moving forward. So let's start with what are some of the symptoms that maybe you're seeing. Can you identify uh, what stage they might be in? Can you help your person compensate for whatever they're losing? What I mean by that is, If you see that they are not staying focused, 
if they are losing the ability to sequence from A to Z, instead of being critical, can you say, it seems like you lost your thought process there. What can I do to help? It's as simple as that. It's as simple as saying, it doesn't look like this is as easy for you as it used to be. Are you struggling with this? How does it make you feel? Is there something I can do to make it better for you? These are easy things to do. So I'm going to move on to the practical suggestions here. Okay, so compile the names of any family and friends, acquaintances, whoever it is, who have dealt with Alzheimer's disease before. You've got to know somebody that has had this disease. Everybody does. I don't think I've met a person in my life that doesn't know somebody that has a family member that has had some type of memory loss, whether they called it Alzheimer's or they called it dementia or whatever, right? So contact them for referrals for doctors and information and how to get started with the diagnosis. Did they go to the Alzheimer's Association? Did they get in a support group? Uh, what, What symptoms did they see? throughout their person's journey that maybe they could cue you in on so it's a little bit easier for you to deal with it when it pops up in your in your path, right? And keep a journal of the changes you see in the person that you're caring for and keep it with you so that you can take it in the car. So you can write things down if you see it. Um, you can... Uh, You're just really journaling all this, and then you can take it to the doctor with you, and you can help the doctor understand the, you know, sort of the chronology of what's happening. When did it happen throughout a day? Is it early in the day when they're having the most confusion? Is it later in the day when they seem like they're not able to follow a conversation? Those kind of things will help the doctor, not only with a diagnosis, but helping as you move forward, okay? And as you prepare to visit with that doctor, you can smooth the path for your person by telling them that you have an appointment and redirect any objections and give them plenty of time to get ready. You can you can sort of divert any of their anxiety and avoid a long wait at the doctor's office by calling ahead to check with the doctor uh, and say, how are your appointments going? If you're running a little late, we'll show up just a little bit late so that that person's not freaking out as they're sitting in the in the office. Okay? So, again, this is a workbook-style uh, kind of class I'm doing today because I want you to think of these things. I want you to have the suggestions for expressing yourself and writing down What's happening in your world? And that's expressing your journey. And then how do, how can we create a path with practical suggestions to help you navigate all this? Okay? So we're, as we go through these, I just want you to really stop and think about, you know, what are you doing and how are you doing it? What questions are you asking? So now the next section that I want to talk about, I've made a zillion notes here, so I'm, I'm trying to keep myself on track today, and I hope it makes sense to all of you. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do the best I can, uh, as all of you are, right? And I'm a caregiver too. So here's the suggestion for expressing and recording your journey here, okay? 
so many caregivers believe they have to do everything. They have to do everything. Some of you become martyrs. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You don't have to do everything. You can allow that person to still do some chores around the house. You can still let them be in the kitchen and help with cooking, especially in the early stage. That's what we're talking about today. Right at the beginning, when this is all starting, what's going on, right? You can ride along with them in a car and talk about their reaction times as long as you're not being judgmental about it. Are you asking other people to help you? Are you willing to do that at all? If the idea of consulting with a doctor or a lawyer or a social worker is uncomfortable for you, then I want you to think about why. Consider the reasons that you don't want to ask for help, okay? And then think about how you can begin to develop a network of professionals who can help you with all of this and make you the most effective caregiver you can be. Why, why would you want to do it all by yourself? All you're going to do is get caregiver burnout. You're going to struggle with what's coming up next instead of being comfortable with it and learning about the progression of the disease. And, and sometimes it can go slow. Sometimes it can go fast. But the, and again, the younger person, I've said this on shows before, the younger the person is, the faster they will progress with the disease. But the older they are, you're going to have a little bit of a slower journey. So you may have some time to get used to this idea, right? So, Think about this for a second. Is your person the kind of person that feels like they can do things alone, that they can take a bath or a shower alone, that they don't need any help from you? And how can you really facilitate connecting your person with the experts that will help them make it through this journey? Do you need to have a home care company come in and help you for a little bit? Maybe help with those baths or showers or have an attorney talk with you about, you know, what you need to do to be successful, uh, getting your power of attorney and, and getting your will and things like that in order. All these things come to play, right? And getting help, asking for help, involving other people may require that you have to reveal your family secrets and <laughs> deeply harbored resentments, we all have them, right? Or issues regarding your person. Sometimes you have to say them out loud. And how will you handle it if all this has to come out? If you have to talk with an attorney or you have to talk with uh, a home care company about the things that you can or cannot do, the things that that uh, you're good at and that you're not good at? Are you not good at the finances? Is it difficult to talk to your person, especially if it's a parent, about their finances? These things are difficult. Asking them if they have a will, asking them who they want to be the power of attorney, that could be, that could be heartbreaking and heart-wrenching if they say it's not you. Hey, those kind of things happen. You don't necessarily have to have your spouse or your children be your power of attorney. But as, you're, as you are preparing to be the main primary caregiver for your person, how are you going to feel if a conversation about those deeply harbored resentments turn into, I don't want you to be the person that makes decisions about my medical or financial decisions? 
You have to be prepared for some of these things. These are not easy. Okay? So, again, back to the practical suggestions to help you pave your path. Um, contact your local Alzheimer's Association. I've, I've mentioned it many, many times that I worked at the Alzheimer's Association for a long time. When you call into the helpline, if you ask for some help with an attorney, they'll give you a list of attorneys. And you can look them up on your own. The Internet's a beautiful thing, right? If you want a list of doctors, they can give you a list of doctors. If you want their monthly newsletter, you can get that. You can get a calendar of support group and classes. Just to find the, the chapter closest to you, go to alz.org. Um, of course, you can always reach out to me, and I can help you with some of those things in a local area. But around the world, the Alzheimer's Association is everywhere. They can get you to where you want to go. I know when I need help myself with all of you and trying to help all of you. And that is a great way for you to be able to reach out to your local resources. So alz.org. Talk to friends and colleagues about their own experiences, right? Dealing with doctors and lawyers as they navigated this journey with the person they love. All right. Do they have any recommendations for you? Did they make any mistakes that they think maybe you can avoid? And ask your doctor to rule out any diseases that kind of look like Alzheimer's, like vascular uh, dementia, Huntington's disease, Lewy body, whatever it is. So as you're, you're kind of paving this path and you're, you're reaching your local Alzheimer's association and finding these doctors, these are the things that you want to make sure that they do. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one -on -one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, so I've talked about getting a hold of your local Alzheimer's Association to help you with uh, getting a list of doctors, of attorneys, of home care companies, of care communities, things like that is very, very helpful. And they can give you the information about the local places. That's just an excellent place to start. Okay? So once you go to a doctor, 
What are you going to find out? Well, the first thing they're going to do is a mini mental status exam. Okay, I've talked about this many times. It's an MMSE. What does it mean? So they're going to ask questions about that person's history, right? And they're going to look at what is your ability to recall something that you have just heard versus information you should know from way back when. When's your birthday? What season is it right now? What's your address? Things like that. The The whole MMSE is based off of a 30-point scale. And you lose points as you can't answer the questions. All right? So they might say, what day is it? What's the name of your street? Uh, where are you right now? What building are we in? What year was it last year? Okay, so that first part is sort of orientation. The second part is about memory, okay? And it tests a patient's ability to immediately repeat three words you've just given to them. I do this all the time, like uh, doctor, lawyer, geologist. Or you make them random, like tree, uh, ball, dog, something like that. And then you chat with them for a little bit. And after about two to three minutes, you'll say, what were those three words I asked you to remember? Okay, so tree, ball, dog. But that person may not be able to remember those kind of things. The third section of it is attention and calculation. Can they complete a simple task like counting backward, uh, like from 100 by 7 or uh, – you know, from 50 by 5 or something like that. Um, the fourth part is that they, can you recall the three words that I said earlier? And that helps you to, uh, again, ask them more than once if they have a chance to remember that and, and uh, express it to you. Then they, w they will ask you about language skills. Um, name two everyday objects that you can think of off the top of your head, like a pencil or a book. Say a tongue twister, like pass the peas, please. Um, carry out a set of instructions, like draw a clock for me. Follow simple instructions, like clap your hands. Write a sentence on a piece of paper. Uh I might draw a triangle and put a circle through it and then flip the paper over and ask them if they can write, draw the same thing, okay? So what do the scores mean? This is the point that many of you that have gone to do an MMSE and you maybe are confused about it. This will help with some clarification. So a score of 20 to 24 points suggests that that person has mild impairment. They're doing okay. They missed a couple things. Not a big deal. Not everybody can count backwards uh, and eliminate seven at a time. Um, people just aren't good at those things, and it may have, you know, three or four points associated with it, and that can make people feel a little strange. But it's not a big deal. But a score of 16 to 19 points suggests that there's moderate impairment. This is beginning to be a problem. Um, 
They probably have slow reaction times when driving. They may be having trouble sequencing, taking a bath or shower and completing all the tasks that go with that, those kinds of things. A score of 10 to 15 indicates that the person is reaching a pretty kind of severe impairment, and that could be a problem. For everybody concerned, they are needing help with showering. They might need you to go to the grocery store with them and pick up their food. You might have to take expired food out of their refrigerator, things like that. And then a score of less than 10 is indicating severe impairment, and they might need to uh, at some point not only have in-home care through a home care company, but you might need to look for a community to care for them. So that's what an MMSE is all about. So now how do we translate that to expressing, you know, the, our, our, our emotions and our feelings and then recording it, our journey? So when you receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, it can trigger a lot of powerful emotions, positive and negative. Seriously. So what are some of your fears about this step? Did some of your fears come true when you got the diagnosis? Oh, no, here we go. This was exactly what I was thinking. They're going to get mean and nasty. We get. I get these kind of questions all the time. Is my person going to get mean? Are they going to hate me? Uh, how quickly will they not know who I am. Watching my mom go through an MMSE was really painful. It really was. And some of you have experienced that and some of you are about to experience it. And I am going to ask you, how can you prepare yourself for the medical testing that will be a part of your loved one's diagnosis? Try not to screw up your face when they miss something. Try not to make it this big emotional disaster. Just kind of keep your face sort of mask-like or in a compassionate uh, zone so that when they do get that diagnosis, you're not freaking them out, okay? Alzheimer's itself, my friends, is just a word, okay? Whatever illness you're defining, if it's vascular dementia, if it's Parkinson's, if it's Alzheimer's, you're just putting a label on it, and it helps to diffuse the power that it has over you and to bring that word, the big A word, into focus so that you can deal with the situation more appropriately. You have to get over and redefine Alzheimer's so that it supports your person on this journey, not devastates them. That's a big deal, okay? So what are some of those practical suggestions to help you pave your path? Locate a doctor that is a specialist in treating Alzheimer's disease. Check with your HMO your primary care physician, friends, again, the chapter of the local Alzheimer's Association or um, an association for gerontology, review your person's health insurance 
so you can determine what's going to be covered and what's not going to be covered and requirements for a referral to a geriatrician or a neurologist because your general practitioner in most cases is not going to be your end all. They, in most in most arenas, have never really had to take a neurology class and have just had people coming in their office over the past 30 years they've been practicing that had memory problems um, and they've seen it before, but they just stamp it dementia and send you on your way with some medication. And that's not what we want. That is not the best way to pave your path. It's not. Okay. So when you're trying to get this done, I want you to think about uh, giving the doctor that you're working with, the neurologist or whoever it is, once you get in to see him, a medical history of your person, the names and dosages of the medications that they are taking, uh, a copy of their power of attorney. Hopefully you've gotten that done. Record their symptoms and behaviors and have those written down as we're talking about right now, journaling and writing all these things down and keeping it in a place that that makes sense so that you can take it to the doctor and let them look through it. And then um, compile a list of questions that you want to ask the doctor. Where do you think my loved one is in this in this journey? What should I do as a caregiver to help them prepare? What do you think we should have done that we have not done at this point in time? Okay? These are really, really important things. And with that, coming circling back to our workbook, the suggestions for expressing your emotions and recording your journey, what, if any, barriers are you having to being an advocate for your loved one? Are you okay talking to the doctor? Are you okay talking with an attorney with them? What family dynamics are going to come into this? Is somebody going to be mad at you thinking that you're you're putting a diagnosis on them? Are they not going to be helpful? Are you going to be the sole caregiver? These are things to be a little worried about, right? Even fearful. Are you afraid that maybe you don't have what it takes to be a caregiver? Or worse yet, you have a lack of commitment and don't want to necessarily help with this? <laughs> if these are obstacles, if these are obstacles for you, if these are problems in your way, what steps can you take to overcome these? You've got to think about it. Are you going to ask for help? Are you going to ask somebody else to step up? And how do you how would you describe the communication patterns in your own family? Are you talking to each other? Are you arguing with each other? How are they magnified by the Alzheimer's diagnosis? Is everybody pointing fingers at each other? Is is somebody saying, I saw it a long time ago, but you guys didn't? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden it becomes, uh, you know, sort of this tug of war of who's going to do what job and who's going to be an advocate, who's going to be the caregiver, who's going to be in charge of medical, who's going to be in charge of financial. These are big things right? Who's going to take care of their finances? I just said that. It's a big deal, especially if you have like a mom or a dad who had definite ideas about money um, and whose job it was to pay the bills. And it's none of your business what I have in my bank account. 
Is money a big value? These are where the family dynamics start screaming. When somebody wants to maybe handle the the finances and they've never been good at doing their own finances, so maybe people in the family start getting suspicious of why they want to be the person that is in charge of that now. Family dynamics are a freaking bear, okay? So whoever in the family is able to really sort of lay all this out, like I said, like a project management uh, situation, it's more helpful to say, okay, I am actually good at um, budgets and so on and so forth, so I think I would like to take that on. All right, now, if you do that, What is your practical suggestion to help you pave your path on this journey? Well, you could prepare a monthly budget of expenses to help you weigh how you're going to pay for long-term care options. Most people don't have long-term care insurance. And if you do, you have to look at the policy really closely to see if that person has it for home care to come in and help or if it has it for has benefits for them going into a community at some point. And these are all things that you have to look at. How much money do they have? At sixty dollars to $80,000 a year, if in 10 years they need to go to a community, do they have enough money for that? These are things you might have to think about and talk about. And you might have to kind of guesstimate whether your person has the resources to stay at home or privately pay for that care or needs to go on Medicaid to cover the cost of long-term uh, care in an assisted living or a nursing care facility. These are difficult things, right? Back to your practical suggestions. Assemble your documents and prepare a list of questions for the attorney before you ever go in to meet because attorneys are expensive, three to $400 an hour. But they can help you sort of sort through Uh, what these different documents and contracts mean if they have any long-term programs. Don't necessarily rely just on the company that they purchased that long-term care insurance from because those folks may have gone out of business and you may need an attorney to tell you how you can plan some recourse if you need help, right? Um, Anytime you can get your list of questions ready, You are saving time and money, and you maximize the impact of your visit. So do your homework. Get ready. Um, You can also contact an insurance broker about long-term care insurance for yourself. I mean, that's not a bad idea. There are not very many people who in this day and age actually purchase one. It's all our elders who did, and man, were they smart because it gets really, really, really expensive. So, you know, find a broker, check with your existing insurance uh, broker, check with friends and colleagues and your local Alzheimer's Association again to see if they can give you a list of some of the places that could help you with that information. I I can't stress enough again today. I'm really talking about the beginning stages and how we can utilize sort of a workbook like this because, you know, here's the thing. Expectations can create our reality for us if we let them. We're expecting 
the journey to go this way. We're expecting the journey to go that way. But what if some of your expectations are unrealistic? That they can, that your person can do things a lot longer uh, down the path than you think they can, or you are thinking that they've lost everything and can only see what they've lost right now. What are your expectations? And how is this going to change? And how are you going to manage those expectations of yourself as you work with your person on this journey? How are you going to get your expectation in line with where your loved one actually is? The best thing we can do is always meet them where they are. Keep our expectations somewhat high so that we try to help them to maintain what they can still do for as long as they can possibly do it. But also uh, curbing those expectations to being able to alter your path if you need to, if they are struggling. Your expectations must be fluid, my friends. They must be fluid. You have to work with where they are. And I want you to ask yourself, can you look back at some of the instances with your person when you became impatient, angry, frustrated, um, and see how you can maybe write a few notes about how you owned these emotions. What made you angry? Why did you get impatient? All this stuff happens mostly in the early stages and can become routine if we don't sort it out and work through it. You have to sort it out and work through it. If a situation were to happen again, how would you do it differently? Like if you walk in the house and they've overflowed the tub and now you're angry at them and you yelled at them and made them feel terrible about it, what would you do the next time? How would you do it differently? I understand that you walked out of the room and forgot that you left the water on. You have short-term memory loss. These kinds of things can be expected. Maybe if you're going to take a bath, next time wait until I'm home and I can draw the bath for you and get the temperature exactly like you like it, put bubbles in, make sure you have a warm towel near the bathtub. How could you change the way you worked with that person? It matters, my friend. So if you find that you have become frustrated or you have become angry, write down what your emotions were and then try to work through what you could do better next time. If they're asking you repetitive questions, that's something that drives care partners crazy. So uh, if you say, I just told you it's 11 o'clock, it's 11 (laughs) o'clock. Maybe next time you could say, hmm, it was 11 o'clock. Why would they be asking me what time it is? Maybe they were hungry. So next time I'll say, well, it's 11 o'clock. Are you ready for lunch? And you can approach it in a kinder, gentler way. So this whole thing today is about what can you do to change 
your approach, be open to being more compassionate and thoughtful in your approach, use some alternative methods that will keep your person feeling like they have a quality of life, okay? So back to, you know, what uh, what are we talking about managing our emotions? How can learning more about dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, help you to avoid these negative behaviors in the past? What do you need to learn about and how will you go about finding the knowledge that you need? Well, I've mentioned it many, many times on my website, summitresiliencetraining.com. I have my knowledge center and I have many, many pieces of information that could help you with taking the car keys away or understanding your own emotions or bathing without a battle. I have a lot of this information for you. You can go on the internet and find a lot of information as well. So what is the practical suggestion that we're going to have to help pave the path? Well, make a list of your personal support system, your friends, your clergy, your colleagues, your family, neighbors, a case manager, a social worker, and have that list handy for emergencies. The emergency would be when you're running out of patience. (laughs) Quite frankly, it's just when you're running out of patience and need that extra help or you have to uh, go on an appointment and can't leave your loved one alone or you're concerned about um, them in some way, shape or form. Um, Just look for what you need from those folks so that you can walk out the door for a few minutes and center yourself so that you can be the best care partner that you can be. Okay? Now, we're back to expressing your emotions, recording your journey. I I seriously want you to write these things down. So think about what traditional roles you've played in your family. How are these roles going to play out now as you accompany your loved one on this journey? What is different now? Were you the daughter or the son? Are you a spouse that now feels like you're a caregiver as opposed to a a loving union that you were supposed to have? What steps can you take to change any of those negative patterns that played out in your family in the past. How can you be more patient? How can you be more thoughtful? How can you be more compassionate? Was your traditional role in the past that that you're sort of the opinionated family member and now you need to, you know, alter that in some way so you're not kind of as sharp as as maybe uh, you used to be when you would have conversations. I'm kind of that person in my family. I'm the misfix-it. I'm bossy. I'm pushy. I'm setting agendas for meetings, things like that. These are the roles I know that I've had. I have sisters who have had different roles. I have one sister who was always kept the humor throughout my mom's journey and other family members that I've talked about on on the program before. I have another sister who always kind of covers the emotional piece. I'm more pragmatic. Who is in charge of what here? 
And I'm going to ask you to think about something that's kind of funny. Do you have any stinking thinking? What are negative thoughts you've held on to about yourself? <laughs> that you're not good enough, that you're not patient enough, that you're not loving enough, that you never had a close relationship with that person and you can't care for them now? Hey, we all have those kind of thoughts, right? We do. And what kind of stinking thinking do you have about your person, <laughs> the loved one, the person with Alzheimer's? Um, maybe stinking thinking about aging and growing old, that you just hate this, that you just don't want to be any part of this. You don't want to see the person deteriorate. Well, I can tell you that's not going to be very helpful for you. You're going to have to either make that commitment like I talked about earlier or decide where your carved out piece can lie. Where, what is your role? Is it going to be cleaning the house for your loved one? Is it going to be uh, taking them to the doctor visits? Is it going to be coming over and, and helping with a bath or a shower? Is it going to be helping with finances and things like that? So last but not least, on your practical suggestions to helping you pave your path, I want you to buy a journal or get Dragon Nuance like I've talked about. It's an app that you can buy where you can just talk into it and the computer writes everything down for you. Make it your special place to record your thoughts, okay? Maybe even uh, add your, your favorite pictures or quotes or inspirational writings or, or whatever it is. But that journal can be something kind of fun for you. And schedule regular times to be yourself. Be, be, be enlightened. Learn about yourself and sit, kind of sit with yourself and figure out who you are as the care partner in this whole situation and and writing down the things that you think you can do. Mark out times that that will work for you on your schedule, your personal calendar, whatever it is, and, and document when you're going over and helping this person, times that irritate you, just dropping by after work and then you stay there for two, three hours, or can you manage the time a little bit better? Talk with your siblings and other relatives to see what their thoughts are about what time and effort they can put forth on this whole thing and compare their thoughts to your own. Is there somebody that's more compassionate about all this than you are? Or is there somebody less compassionate than you are? Are other people thinking about what roles they can take? Can you help navigate this and sort of give everybody a job so that everybody is successful in participating and working together on this? It might actually help you to identify your family members and patterns and also for your own positive thinking, for your own positive engagement with your person. So anything that you can do to help yourself on this journey is going to is going to just reap such good benefits for you. And that's why I wanted to have this like little workshop today where we thought about where we are emotionally, 
talking through the questions that we need to ask ourselves before we embark on this journey, questions we need to ask professionals, and looking at the family dynamics, and then charting that path so that you are successful, that your person with the diagnosis is successful, and that family and friends are successful. People often ask me, where do I begin? I don't know where to begin. Nobody ever gave me a workbook. Today, I've tried to give you a couple of ways to write questions down, to ask yourself, and then answer the damn questions and figure it out. You can do this. Sometimes we just have to chart our path, right? I wish you luck on your journey, and I'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.